Today, we'll start with a debrief, our roundup of the JPR News of the Week. Those stories include a benefit concert for refugees from Ukraine in the Rogue Valley, a new law about offshore wind development on the California coast, and Saturday's eclipse. JPR News Director Eric Newman is joined by reporters Roman Battaglia and Jane Vaughn. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Good morning. We're going to start this version of the debrief with a story from Roman. This Saturday, a benefit concert in Ashland will help Ukrainian refugee families who've come to the Rogue Valley after the Russian invasion. One of those families came from Mariupol, one of the most devastated cities in Ukraine, on a 7,000-mile journey to Ashland, Oregon. JPR's Roman Battaglia brings us their story. Everything changed for Elena and Misha Zivotovsky on February 24, 2022, when Russia began an all-out assault on the southeastern port city of Mariupol, where they lived. Olena was getting ready to take her two kids to school that day. And then I got a message uh, for uh, the teacher about this. Don't worry, everything will be good. Just uh, maybe for safe, uh, stay at home. Olena and Misha say they could hear bombs falling all around them. Terrible sounds. It was 24 hours from day. And we lived uh, there, we stayed there 24 days. And uh, we, we lived there without light, without uh, internet, without water. water, without food, without everything. And uh, people, and people ju- just survive. Husband Misha says he saw Russian soldiers kill children and the elderly in the streets. The couple says they were lucky to survive in a city reported to be almost completely destroyed from bombing by the Russians. Misha bought an old Soviet-era car to pack his family into. They left the city about a month after the invasion began. They quickly packed their things, not wanting to get trapped in the city if evacuation routes closed. Olena says protecting her children was more important than family mementos. We just uh, took uh, important things. It's document uh, for one important things what we took, and it was my uh, stuff for hydrating. <laughs> you yeah. know why? It's, uh, for, for me, it was very important. Hairstyling was one of Olena's many jobs in Mariupol. She brings in a gray and green messenger bag filled with various scissors, clippers, combs, and even the cape you wear when getting a haircut. She says she still cuts her family's hair and offers her services for free to friends. The Zivotovskys left Mariupol, bound for Misha's aunt's home in Narubaika, in central Ukraine. What would usually take them less than a day's travel stretched out over three. Misha says they were stopped at countless checkpoints by Russian soldiers, interrogating them and looking for tattoos that could link him to the Ukrainian military. I, I take my clothes yes, out I, and, and check tattoo, and uh, one uh, post take uh, automats to my children and ask children about uh, how my name, how her name. They spent three months in Narubaika before going to Germany. Eventually, they got connected with the group Uniting for Ukraine, which helps resettle refugees in the Rogue Valley. Misha, like, and he, he said, like, yes, we, we want. And uh, for me, it was, uh, I didn't know what uh, I, when I will come here in the United States, what next, what I can do here. Ultimately, they decided coming to America was the best option for their kids. When they first arrived in Ashland a little over a year ago, they knew very little English. Olena says volunteers would come to their home every day with food, but the language barrier was difficult. For me, I one month I just uh, I I not speak. I just yes, no, it's all. And now just need to be better, but I need to work. Olena's kids were learning English in school back in Ukraine and have already made lots of friends. Do you ever do you ever think about going back to Ukraine, like when the war is over? Uh, I don't know. We 
uh, we want to stay, uh, but uh, for, I, I want maybe come back to see my family. We, we, we don't think a uh, lot, of, lot of about this because uh, we don't know how this war finished. Olena's mother and sister are still living in Mariupol, and Misha has family that's been living in the Russian-occupied Donetsk region since 2014. Olena tells me the instability of their home in Mariupol further cements the idea of staying here permanently. There's a possibility it could all happen again. Yes, I'm very afraid to because again. it's it's happened twice, and it's uh, it can be happened again. Of and, course, uh, he never stopped. The program Olena and Misha came to the U.S. under allows them to stay for one more year. Olena says they're looking at applying for temporary protected status to extend their stay further. She says she couldn't imagine this happening to her just a few years ago. The couple say being able to live safely together as a family is what they're most grateful for now. This Saturday, Uniting for Ukraine, the group that brought Olena and Misha to the Rogue Valley, is holding a benefit concert at Grizzly Peak Winery. Proceeds from the event go towards the Ukrainian families who come here. Roman Battaglia, JPR News. All right, Roman, so um, you went and interviewed this family. You came back with a ton of audio. Tell us about a little bit about the experience of uh, just doing the interviews for this story. Yeah, I uh, I talked with the Zhivotovskis for like two and a half hours, which I think is probably the longest time I've interviewed someone. Um, they just had a really interesting story, and I just want to know everything about it. Um, you know, I want to share it with people because theirs is just like one story of like thousands and thousands of Ukrainian families who fled the country, I think hundreds of thousands. Um, you know, there was a lot of emotion and devastation there, but um, one thing I didn't get to include in this story was kind of their first days in America. That's something I, I've talked with other refugees and immigrants who come here, and it's always interesting to hear about, like, what surprised them the most about coming to the U.S., especially after, you know, a lot of people only see America through movies and TVs, a lot of stereotypes, just like Olena had. Um, Olena had told me that one thing that really surprised her was how friendly random strangers would be. For me, it's a very big surprise when you stay in line in shop. The strangers, uh, the people who didn't know you, can say, "Oh, you, you, you like look nice today. Yeah, you yeah, have a very beautiful jacket. You, oh, you, you are amazing. Like it's for me. Like <laughs> after this, you can smile all, all day. It's uh, <laughs> and it's for me. It's it was very big surprise. And in Ukraine, it's, uh, nobody to no. can tell you what you look great today. <laughs> Um, another thing that they told me was like discovering American fast food. They told me that they didn't eat a lot out in Ukraine. Um, and in Ukraine, they told me that they call French fries potatoes free. Um, and so when they went to McDonald's and they saw French fries available, the server there was really confused when they were asking for potatoes free, thinking that they wanted free French fries. Um, so I was really trying to find creative ways to show their journey in this story. Um, I obviously can't cover the entire journey. There's a lot of like their journey in Germany that I missed. Um, so one thing I did include in the story on our website is this interactive map where you can like track their journey from Mariupol to Nerubaika through all the different places they went in Germany to kind of like figure out and see where they actually went and follow how long and how many places they had to go. Yeah, yeah, quite quite a long distance, 7,000 miles. So their story was really intense. Um, they've come from, like you said, such a devastated place and they've been through so much. 
Um, how do you change the way that you do reporting when you're covering stories that involve refugees or people that have been in other traumatic situations? Yeah, you know, obviously it's really hard for them. Um, Olana had told me it was really hard for them to talk about their story when first arriving here. Um, I think the most important thing is just to make sure that they're comfortable. You don't want to pressure people into talking about and, you know, re-traumatizing them talking about these situations. So giving them space is partly why the interview took a long time. Um, and also a lot of these people dealing with these situations have never been interviewed for the news before. So, you know, making sure they know, like, the protocol that we think, you know, people like politicians might be familiar with, like, everything I'm doing is recorded, you know, we can take breaks if we need to, you know, if they want to say something off the record, we talk about, like, what that process looks like. So kind of letting people process their emotions and just um, also taking a lot of care when telling the story not to re-traumatize them. That's part of, like, our ethical code is to minimize harm. So making sure to show them compassion. I talked with Elena a lot after our interview to kind of check on facts and figure out the right way to say things. Like, she and her husband use different forms of their last name because she's female and he's male. So she's trying to figure out, like, what's the right way to say their last name and things like that just mm -hmm. to make sure I have everything right. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of the reason that you did this story right now is there's a benefit concert that's happening tomorrow for uh, Elena and Misha and other Ukrainian families in the area. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, that's part of why I did this story. That concert's happening tomorrow at the Grizzly Peak Winery from 1 to 5 p.m. in Ashland. Um, I also had found out while I was talking with them that this, uh, I talked to Olena and Misha on their one-year anniversary of coming to the U.S. on September 28th. Um, but this concert, this is the third benefit concert that this group, Uniting for Ukraine, has held since they've started. Um, they looking at their past concerts, it looks like they've raised over $40,000 over the last two concerts that they've done for Ukrainian families. So they're kind of hoping to, you know, raise more money for these families and help them get settled in, get them what they need, um, find jobs, job training, stuff like that. I know that like Misha and Elena are looking at more job training to like get into what they want to do here. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thanks for bringing, this, mm -hmm. bringing us that portrait, Roman. Um, Jane, we're going to turn to you next. Um, you worked on a story this week about offshore wind in California. Um, there's a new law that is related to this kind of growing industry off the coast. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there was a new law that was signed by the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, on Saturday, so almost a week ago at this point, and it will go into effect on January 1st. Basically, the goal is to speed up the timeline for permitting for new offshore wind development projects in the state of California. Basically, it requires their coastal commission to process consolidated permits for these coastal developments. It's a bit unclear what that exactly means, what those consolidated permits are, but the law's main sponsor is saying that it's going to basically streamline permitting for these projects. So the main sponsor is Senator Mike McGuire. In our coverage area, his district includes Mendocino, Trinity, and Humboldt counties. And he says basically it's going to slash five years off of the normal permitting timeline for these projects. So really trying to get them going. He says it's going to be good for the state's climate goals and renewable energy goals and things like that. Okay, great. And just uh, for folks who might not be familiar with uh, this trend in general, what's the general background about these massive wind projects that are uh, planned for the coast? Sure. So it's sort of new for the region, these offshore wind developments. Um, Roman did a story about this in December, but the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management sold five leases for wind energy projects off the coast of California, including in Humboldt County in our coverage area. And so that was the first federal offshore wind energy lease on the West Coast. So it's sort of a new thing that we're trying to figure out how to regulate and, and how to deal with. 
So these wind projects are one way that the federal government is trying to promote alternative energy sources to combat climate change. It's worth noting that there has been some opposition uh, to these big wind projects. Did you hear about any pushback specifically related to this new law? In terms of this new law specifically, I know the Federal Department of Finance opposed it because they said it would um, cause significant ongoing general fund costs. Um, otherwise, I didn't hear a lot of pushback about this law specifically, but more about offshore wind in general in California, and especially that comes from a lot of local tribes. So there was a, a op-ed that was written by the Yurok Tribal Council chair vice chairman, whose name is Frankie Myers. He wrote that for CalMatters, and he was talking about concerns that he had about companies extracting vital natural resources without tribal input um, in the state. And so he was talking about the, the impacts this could have to their ancestral landscape and, you know, talking about promises that have been made in the past to these tribes that have been broken. Um, and so he thinks that, you know, if na tribal nations decide to support offshore wind, they should be in leadership positions through every phase of the process. And he wants to make sure that they're recognized for the stewardship that they've conducted of the land. Um, I will say that this law in particular seems to be trying to address that concern. Hmm. Um, part of the law is creating a working group that's going to create a strategy for minimizing the impacts to ocean fisheries from offshore wind. And so part of that is creating what's called an offshore wind energy resiliency fund, which is basically paying fisheries and fishermen, um, including tribal fisheries, for the potential economic impacts of offshore wind. So they would be, be paid as a result of that. And this working group is composed of a lot of different representatives from a bunch of different stakeholders, but it does include representatives from California's uh, Native American tribes and affected tribal fisheries and other stakeholders. So it seems like they are trying to include these local tribes in that conversation. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jane. Sure. Um, last thing today, um, tomorrow morning, a reminder that is that's when the eclipse will be happening approximately from 9.15 to 9.24 a.m. in the morning. Anybody going to go see the eclipse? Um, definitely. It's like so <laughs> close. I mean, if I'm not going to Medford, I think I might be trying to go to Crater Lake now. Someone had talked about that. I know that that's one of the areas where you can like see the eclipse for the longest. It's like, it's anywhere between like one minute to like four minutes and 30 seconds, depending between yeah. like Medford and Crater Lake area. Mm -hmm. It might be cloudy though. Yes. Oh my gosh. Cloudy. Yeah. From what we have seen from the National Weather Service, cloud cover coming in from Friday night and Saturday morning is going to make it really hard to see. I know that like the coast is going to be the cloudiest and then it kind of gets a little less cloudy as you go further. So really your best bet of seeing the eclipse is going to be east of the Cascades. Yeah, southeast. Yeah, over yep. in like Klamath Falls area, somewhere like that is probably going to be the best place. Um, right. I also had talked with like a meteorologist earlier this week who had said they're, they're really hoping they don't necessarily know, but they're kind of hoping that um, – the clouds that come in are going to be like lighter cirrus clouds, which are those really feathery clouds that are really high up. And so that won't like obscure the eclipse completely, but it'll still make it, you know, you can still see it a little bit, but hopefully yeah. it won't be too bad. Yeah, we'll see. I'm going to have to track the weather and make a plan. <laughs> okay. Well, that is going to do it for the debrief this week. Thanks for listening. You can reach the newsroom with comments on our coverage and suggestions for other things that we should be covering in the future through our news tip line. Um, you can find that on our website at ijpr.org. We're also in the midst of our fall fund drive where you can also make donations. Um, you can find this program and many others on jeffexchange.org or all the places you get your podcasts. 